Our kids have said to us since we moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, of the values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See what makes Minnesota the star of the North. New residents share why they love calling it home at exploreminnesota.com slash live. Before we start, just a quick warning that this episode contains descriptions of violence or sexual content that may not be suitable for all listeners. Tur Cathedral is a building site. The ancient house of God that once stood here is being replaced with a state-of-the-art successor. This type of project typically takes not just years, but decades. On a normal working day, the place is alive with noise. Wooden cranes winching stone blocks into place. Stonemasons working on the fine detail with hammer and chisel. Builders calling to one another, sharing new instructions or just swapping jokes and gossip. But today isn't a normal day. The construction site has fallen silent. For into the half-built cathedral strides an imposing figure, his cloak billowing behind him. It's Richard the Lionheart, ruler of Aquitaine and heir to the whole Plantagenet Empire. He's rushed here in the autumn of 1187 to kick off what he considers the most important mission of his life. Nearly 60 years ago, Richard's great-grandfather, Fulk of Anjou, stood exactly where Richard stands now. He hurled himself theatrically to the floor in front of the high altar of the cathedral and made a solemn promise to go on crusade. And off Fulk went to the Holy Land, where he married a princess called Melisande and became king of Jerusalem, the ultimate defender of Christ's tomb and the other Christian holy sites nearby. Now, Richard is performing a similar ritual. He isn't quite preparing to become king of Jerusalem, but he's setting himself up as its saviour all the same. Just weeks ago, the holy city fell into the hands of Saladin, the all-powerful sultan of Egypt and Syria. Saladin has also snatched the true cross, the most treasured relic in Christendom, said to be a piece of the very cross on which Jesus was crucified. Plus, he's captured King Guy of Jerusalem and executed hundreds of the worthiest Christian knights in the land. It's a catastrophe. And the Pope... Well, the Pope died of shock on hearing the news, but the new Pope has called on every lord and knight in the West to do something about it. He says they need to consider why God put them on earth. Then we can deal with the savagery and malice of our enemies. And what they do not fear to try against God, we will not hesitate to do for God. Richard knows what that means. It's time for badass young Christian lords like him to get off their finely clad backsides and go and sort Saladin out. What's more, he wants to be the first to take up the challenge. That's why he's rushed to the symbolic location of Tours, 
where his great-grandad made his famous vow all those years ago. We don't know the exact details of the ceremony that Richard undergoes, whether he rolls around on the floor like Fulk or whether he plays it a bit cooler. We do know it's presided over by the Archbishop of Tours, and it almost certainly involves a whole bevy of priests chanting prayers over the small cloth cross that will mark Richard out as a crusader. That cross is given to Richard with great solemnity and more prayers. Someone handy with a needle and thread is nearby to sew it onto the shoulder of his cloak, where it's traditionally displayed. Then there are even more prayers for good measure. And it's done. Richard has taken the cross. He's officially a crusader. And just as he hoped, he's beaten everyone else to it. He's the first great lord north of the Alps to promise to lead what will become the Third Crusade. The chronicler Gerald of Wales says he's set an example of noble daring. The poet Bertrand de Bourne says that by taking the cross, Richard's worth is doubled. But once the ceremony is over, and the builders at Tour Cathedral get back to their work, there's a big question hanging in the air. Who's going to join Richard? And what will it mean for the delicate balance of power in the Plantagenet Empire? Is Richard going to save the world as he imagines? Or is he about to throw it into chaos worse than anything that's come before? I'm Dan Jones, and from Something Else and Sony Music Entertainment, this is History, a dynasty to die for. Episode 22, Crusade Fever. Taking the cross in the Middle Ages is no joke. It's a deal with God, brokered by the Pope. And the bargain is this. When you go through the cross-taking ceremony you're swearing a public oath that you're going to risk your life battling God's enemies. Your reward will be remission of sins, a VIP pass into the members' lounge that is eternal paradise. But it doesn't come cheap. Crusading means a long and expensive, not to mention dangerous, journey. Spending years away from home in a foreign land, a war zone between East and West. When you get to that war zone, there's a good chance you'll be doing real fighting against real hard men. Generals like Saladin, who eat crusaders for breakfast and want the whole world to know about it. And there's no chickening out. Stories are rife in the Middle Ages of how God punishes cowards, who either won't take the cross in the first place, or who do and then get cold feet. Take this example. Shortly after Richard makes his vows in 1187, there's a big crusading recruitment drive in Wales. Chronicler Gerald of Wales, as usual, is on the scene, and he tells a vivid story of a young married couple who turn up to see the recruiters come through their town. This couple have a big barney. The guy's hyped up. He wants to go off and fight. 
the wife is having none of it. They have a young family and, not unreasonably, she wants him at home. So she physically grabs hold of her husband and holds him by his belt to stop him rushing up to the recruiting officers to claim his Crusader cross. She seems to have won, but then, Gerald says, God wreaks terrible punishment on them. Three days after they've argued, the woman hears an ominous voice telling her that since she's taken someone away from the crusade, God's going to take someone from her. That night in bed, she rolls over in her sleep and suffocates one of her children, who's sleeping next to her. The next morning, in shock and grief, she runs to see her local bishop and begs him to tell her what to do. You can probably guess the punchline to this grisly story. She goes home and sews her husband's crusader cross on herself. Pretty traumatic, right? But that's the point. Gerald of Wales is warning everyone, big and small, that crusading is deadly serious. Everyone has their part to play, from Welsh peasants to mighty princes like Richard, and shame on anyone who doesn't step up. There's plenty more to explore around the crusading recruitment frenzy, and I'll be going into it in this week's subscriber episode. Now, when Richard takes the cross in the autumn of 1187, it brings its own set of problems. Sure, in the eyes of the church, and plenty of the chroniclers, he's a total legend. Trouble is, not everyone takes such a generous and uncomplicated view. Because Richard didn't exactly discuss this with anyone. You might have thought that before he committed to going crusading, he would have mentioned it to the most important people in his life. Like, you know his new BFF, Philip Augustus, King of France. Or maybe his dad, Henry II, the most important and powerful ruler in Western Europe. But no, this was Richard doing Richard. Act first, and let everyone else catch up. That's the way he likes it. But when the news of what he's done gets around, it causes a huge stir. We don't know exactly who breaks it to old Henry that his eldest surviving son and heir has promised to go off on a deadly adventure to the Holy Land, but Henry's reaction is on record. The chronicler Gervais of Canterbury hears that the old boy is so disturbed that for four days all royal business is suspended. Access to the king is open to virtually nobody. Is Henry being a bit of a drama king? Well, Actually, no, I think Henry's reaction is more than reasonable. This isn't the first time in his life he's had cause to wonder exactly what planet one of his children is living on. No matter how frosty father-son relations have been in recent months, with Richard cozying up with the King of France, to take the cross without consulting anyone puts Henry in an incredible bind. When Richard goes to the Holy Land he'll effectively be taking himself out of Plantagenet politics for at least 18 months, maybe as much as three years. And as troublesome as Richard has been recently, 
he's always been by far the most capable of the Plantagenet boys. Richard disappearing over the horizon will leave Henry with just one son to help him out, John. And if Richard doesn't come back, God forbid, then John will end up in line to inherit the whole thing. Yes, John will always be Henry's baby, his favourite. But Henry isn't totally deluded. John is still only 19 years old and wetter behind the ears than a sweaty goldfish. And if you remember, when he was in Ireland, he managed to start a small war by tugging the locals' beards. Can we imagine John ruling England, Normandy, Anjou, Brittany, Aquitaine by himself? Henry can barely cope, and he's the most accomplished ruler of his generation. John's not going to last five minutes. The barons will rebel against him in a heartbeat. Philip Augustus will run rings around him. So, what's Henry going to do? Well, number one, he can't afford to die before all this gets sorted. That'll be spin classes every morning from now on, and no carbs after 3pm. And number two... He's going to have to work out very quickly how his nemesis, Philip Augustus, is going to respond to all this. Knowing Philip, he'll try and play it for as much political advantage as he possibly can. I mean, that's what Henry would do in his shoes. Oh, and that's not everything. Because now that Richard has made his crusader vows, you can bet your bottom shilling that people are going to start asking Henry when he's going off to the East to join his son, which is a question he'd very much like to avoid. Since the 1170s, Henry has repeatedly muttered that he might go crusading one day, but mostly on the understanding that tomorrow never comes. He's paid a good deal of money to the Kingdom of Jerusalem precisely so that he can put off going in person. Remember that in 1185, just two years earlier, Henry turned down the crown of Jerusalem when it was offered to him on a plate by the patriarch Heraclius. Bottom line? He thinks that if he leaves his empire, he might not find it in one piece when he comes back. And from what we've seen of his son's behaviour and Philip Augustus's ambition, can you blame him? But thanks to Saladin, and now, Richard, Henry's wriggle room is getting tighter. How many more excuses can he make? When Henry III chose his royal advisers, he ended up with some very untrustworthy power grabbers, which led to poor management decisions, rebellions, and at least one person in prison. Why didn't he use Indeed? Well, Indeed wasn't around back then, but it is today. Indeed is the ultimate hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and matching technology that helps you find quality candidates fast. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. When I was hiring, I didn't use Indeed either, and the process was very slow and stressful, so I wish I had. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a £100 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash Dynasty. Indeed.com slash Dynasty. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. 
Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. On the 21st of January, 1188, Henry meets Philip Augustus on the borders of their lands for a peace summit. The official agenda is to sort out those ongoing territorial disagreements which have been simmering for two years and are threatening to boil over into a full-blown war. But the summit is happening under the cloud of the catastrophic news from Jerusalem and Richard's impulsive decision to take the cross. Now, every negotiation between the two of them is like playing 4D chess. These two crafty politicians both want to figure out what the other one is really planning, how they can then work it to their advantage, and how they can square it with the crusading fever that's sweeping Europe. A lot is resting on the outcome of this meeting, but it happens to be one that no one saw coming. Given the situation in the East, high-ranking churchmen from the Kingdom of Jerusalem are touring the West trying to gain as much support as they can for the war against Saladin. One of those men is the Archbishop of Tyre, that's a major port city on the coast of what's now Lebanon, which is still holding out against Saladin. The Archbishop comes to the peace talks with Henry and Philip to give them a presentation about the terrible state of affairs back home. This isn't exactly breaking news, yet it seems that the Archbishop is a hell of a persuasive speaker. Either that, or the two kings have come to the same dramatic conclusion already. Or just possibly, it's the sight of a great cross which appears in the wintry clouds above the meeting, looking very much like a message from God. Whatever the reason, Henry and Philip arrive at the meeting expecting to thrash out some good old-fashioned land disputes. They come out of it, converted to the cause. Suddenly they see that the threat to the Holy Land really is existential. They acknowledge the heat they're feeling to come to its rescue, and they admit Richard is making them both look like wimps. So what if... They called a truce for a couple of years and joined forces to save the beating heart of the Christian world. Could they? Should they? Sod it, they say. Let's go. Henry and Philip tell the delighted Archbishop of Tyre that he's convinced them. They take the cross on the spot. Then they start making plans. Most importantly, what are we going to wear? Well, how about English crusaders wear white crosses and the French wear red? Who else shall we invite? Mm, Count of Flanders will probably be up for it. Let's get him to give his guys green crosses. What about paying for it? Here's an idea. Anyone who comes crusading is welcome. Anyone who stays at home can pay a tax of 10% on their entire wealth and income. Genius! What should we call that tax? How about the Saladin Tithe? Should we get some women along? 
Mm, not sure that's going to fly with the Pope. I say we just bring well-behaved laundry girls. Really? Yes, Henry, really. They get the Pope to decree that if anyone attacks either of their lands while they're away crusading, the attacker will go straight to hell. Then they start making plans to leave in a year's time, hoping that there will be something of the Kingdom of Jerusalem left for them to save when they get there. The French and Plantagenet crusade is on, with Henry, Richard and Philip at its head. Saladin had better watch his back, and all those who doubted that these larger-than-life personalities could work together are going to eat their words. Or are they? All that's for next time on This Is History. If you're craving more Plantagenet drama now, I've got you covered. Join me on This Is History Plus, where every week I reveal the weird details, fun facts and fascinating subplots we don't have time for in the main story. This time, we're going to hear some more Crusader stories and explore the various omens and prophecies that crop up a lot around this time. And on top of that, as a subscriber, you'll get all our episodes ad-free. Just visit This Is History on Apple Podcasts and click Try Free at the top of the page to start your free trial today. Or visit thisishistorypod.com to get access wherever you get your podcasts. Finally, if you're enjoying the show, please do give us a rating or review. It's a great way to support us and help new people find the podcast. Our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, of values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See what makes Minnesota the star of the North. New residents share why they love calling it home at exploreminnesota.com slash live. <laughs> <laughs>